Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. I'm Judge Michael Warren, and in this episode, we continue our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. We have completed our examination of Sections 1 through 6 of Article 1 and the first provision of Section 7. In this episode, we will review the remainder of Section 7 of Article 1, which dictates the exact procedures by which legislation can become law, including presidential vetoes. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. When we return, Mike Gerard will get us started. As we previously discussed, the first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. The first six sections of Article I address the structure of the Congress, congressional elections, the qualifications for serving as a member of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and certain protections provided to representatives and senators. Section 7 finally starts to address what the Congress does and how it does its work. As we learned last episode, the first sentence of Section 7 provides an exclusive authority over raising revenue to the House of Representatives. The next clauses of Section 7 define the procedures and processes by which legislation becomes law. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it become law, be presented to the President of the United States. If he approve, he shall sign it, but if not, he shall return it, with his objections to that House in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider it. If after such reconsideration two-thirds of that House shall agree to pass the bill, it shall be sent, together with the objections to the other House, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered. And if approved by two-thirds of that House, it shall become law. But in all such cases, the votes of both Houses shall be determined by yeas and nays, and the names of the persons voting for and against the bill shall be entered on the journal of each House, respectively. If any bill shall not be returned by the President within ten days, Sundays excepted, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall be law, in like manner as if he had signed it, unless the Congress by their adjournment prevent its return, in which case it shall not be a law. In modern parlance, this clause is often referred to as the presentment clause. It has this moniker because it requires all legislation to be presented to the president before it can be made law. But it is much more than this. It specifies the precise way in which law is made. So others, and we think more accurately, refer to this clause as the lawmaking clause. We will use these terms interchangeably. Following the lawmaking clause is a parallel provision involving resolutions, orders, and votes. Some call this the presentment of resolutions clause, and we'll refer to it in that fashion or as the resolutions-making clause. Every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and House of Representatives may be necessary, except on a question of adjournment, shall be presented to the President of the United States, and before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him, or being disapproved by him, shall be repassed by two-thirds of the Senate and House of Representatives according to the rules and limitations prescribed in the case of a bill. If I might, Mike Gerard, almost all the discussion and debate on these provisions focus on the lawmaking clause. The resolutions-making clause was added to ensure that Congress could not avoid the procedures in the lawmaking clause. Well, thanks for that insight, Judge Warren, but uh, get out of my segment. Now then, 
As we reviewed in our episodes about the Articles of Confederation, the Articles had an entirely different manner of lawmaking. There was no president, so there was no one to present legislation to for approval or veto. The Congress was a unicameral body. That is, there was only one chamber or house of the Congress. So legislation only needed to be approved by that single body. Also, each state had a single vote, and it took nine votes to approve most major legislation. The lawmaking clause in the Constitution is completely different. The Congress is a bicameral body in the Constitution. That is, it has two houses or chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Each chamber must approve the exact same piece of legislation before it can become law. If a bill is approved by both chambers to become law, the president must sign it. And if not, he or she must return it unsigned with his or her objections, giving the reasons why. And we call that a veto. It's interesting that the word veto actually isn't in the Constitution, but everybody calls it that. If the president vetoes a bill, it dies, with one exception. If each House of Congress approves the bill after a veto by at least a two-thirds majority, the bill becomes the law. The Constitution is very specific. The first chamber to consider a vetoed bill is the one which originated it. If that chamber fails to conduct a successful override, the override attempt just stops there. Only after the originating chamber overrides the veto can the bill then be considered by the other chamber. In addition, the override of the veto must happen during the same session of Congress. All legislation dies at the end of the respective two-year session of the House of Representatives. For example, the Congress elected in November of 2020 took office in January of 2021. Members of the House of Representatives served through December 31st, 2022. Any bills passed by that Congress had to be approved by December 31st, 2022, or die. There is another way a bill can become law. If the president fails to veto a bill after the waiting period, but doesn't sign it, it still becomes law. Now, I suppose that could be called a pocket signature. The president just puts the bill in his or her pocket, and it becomes law after 10 days. On the other hand, if Congress passes a bill and they recess before the 10-day waiting period, the president is entitled to consider the bill. If he or she doesn't sign or veto it, however, it fails to become law. And we call that a pocket veto. The president just puts the bill in his or her pocket and it dies when the congressional session ends, even without a veto. James Madison was the first president to use the pocket veto. A pocket veto cannot be overridden by Congress because the Constitution requires a 10-day waiting period, excepting Sundays, for any bill to become law. Now, to flesh this out, if the Congress passed a bill on December 24, 2022, the President would have had the option to pocket veto it because the term of that Congress expired on December 31, 2022, well before the end of the 10-day waiting period. The lawmaking clause was part and parcel of the Virginia Plan, and as we previously discussed in prior episodes, on May 29, 1787, Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph proposed a framework of the government which was primarily drafted by James Madison. We often refer to it as the Virginia Plan, otherwise known as the Randolph Plan or Randolph Resolutions. 
the resolutions provided that there be two branches of the legislature. However, instead of presenting legislation to the president, Resolution 8 of the Virginia Plan provided that there would be a Council of Revision that would review legislation. The Council of Revision would be composed of the national executive and judiciary, which would have the authority to negate any legislation passed by the legislature. Resolved that the executive and a convenient number of the national judiciary ought to compose a council of revision with authority to examine every act of the national legislature before it shall be final, and that the dissent of the said council shall amount to a rejection, unless the act of the national legislature be again passed by blank of the members of each branch. On June 15, 1787, William Patterson of New Jersey presented a counterplan to the Virginia Plan. Often referred to as the New Jersey Plan, the Patterson Resolves, or the Patterson Plan, it kept the main features of the composition of Congress as it existed under the Articles of Confederation. Although it established a federal executive and a federal judiciary, there was no requirement that the legislation be presented to the executive or judiciary for approval or veto. On June 18th, Alexander Hamilton presented his own plan of government. Like the Virginia plan, Hamilton proposed a bicameral legislature, a Senate and an Assembly, as well as an executive, which he dubbed the governor. The governor had an absolute veto over congressional legislation. In other words, the Congress could not override a veto exercised by the governor. Now, as we've also learned, the New Jersey plan was defeated, the Hamilton plan was ignored, and the Virginia plan became the main focus of the Constitutional Convention. The idea of a bicameral Congress was never seriously debated afterwards. The need for the two chambers of Congress to approve identical language was just accepted as a matter of course. Bicameral legislatures, that is, legislatures with two chambers, existed in 12 of the 13 states. Only Pennsylvania had a one-chamber, unicameral legislature. The 12 bicameral states all required that each chamber approve identical legislation before it became law. Although the idea of bicameralism was readily accepted, the idea of a veto was heavily debated. In response to the Virginia Plan, on June 4th, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts proposed that Randolph's proposal for a Council of Revision, which included judges, be replaced with a veto by the executive only. James Wilson of Pennsylvania, who would later become a Justice of the Supreme Court and was a strong force at the Constitutional Convention, agreed that the Council of Revision should be abandoned but he also argued for an absolute presidential veto that could not be overridden. Wilson argued that this absolute veto was necessary to give the president sufficient independence. If the legislative, executive, and judiciary ought to be distinct and independent, the executive ought to have an absolute negative Without such a self-defense, the legislature can, at any moment, sink it into non-existence. 
I am for varying the proposition in such a manner as to give the executive and judiciary jointly an absolute negative. Wilson and Hamilton joined together to move to provide an absolute negative to the executive only. They thought there was no danger of such a power being too much exercised. It was mentioned by Hamilton that the King of Great Britain had not exerted his negative since the revolution. Gary countered that there should be no veto. I see no necessity for so great a control over the legislature as the best men in the community would be comprised in the two branches of it. In other words, we should be able to trust two-thirds of Congress to do the right thing since they would be composed of the best people America has to offer. <clears throat> Pennsylvanian Benjamin Franklin rose to oppose Pennsylvanian Wilson's attempt to make the veto absolute. He remarked that experience in their home state revealed that the executive could abuse the veto and it would even corrupt the legislative process. I am sorry to differ from my colleague, for whom I have very great respect on any occasion, but I cannot help it on this. I had some experience of this check in the executive on the legislature under the proprietary government of Pennsylvania. The negative of the governor was constantly made use of to extort money. No good law whatever could be passed without a private bargain with him. An increase of a salary or some donation was always made a condition till at last it become the regular practice to have orders in his favor on the treasury, presented along with bills to be so signed so that he might actually receive the former before he should sign the latter. When the Indians were scalping the Western people and notice of it arrived, the concurrence of the governor and the means of self-defense could not be got until it was agreed that his estate should be exempted from taxation. So that the people were to fight for the security of his property whilst he was to bear no share of the burden. This was a mischievous sort of check. If the executive was to have a council, such a power would be less objectionable. It was true. The King of Great Britain had not, as was said, exerted his negative since the revolution. But that matter was easily explained. The bribes and emoluments now given to the members of Parliament of the ministers. I am afraid if a negative should be given as proposed, that more power and money would be demanded till at last enough would be got to influence and bribe the legislature into a complete subjugation to the will of the executive. Franklin's opposition was based on the real-life experience of a governor who had gone amok, who put the safety of his own people subordinate to his own greed. He cowered the legislature into approving salary increases and other transactions that made him rich. Plus, it subordinated the legislature massively. The ability to override the veto was critical. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, an essential but often overlooked founding father, rose to support an override mechanism. The Constitution could not empower one person to override the collective wisdom of the entire Congress. 
I am against enabling any one man to stop the will of the whole. No one man could be found so far above all the rest in wisdom. I think we ought to avail ourselves of his wisdom in revising the laws, but not permit him to overrule the decided and cool opinions of the legislature. Virginia's James Madison suggested that an absolute veto should not be necessary so long as the proper portion of each branch required to override the veto was ascertained. One might think that hearing three of the leading men of the age, James Madison, Roger Sherman, and Benjamin Franklin, shoot down the idea of an absolute veto would be persuasive. But not to James Wilson. He countered that under this Constitution, the experiences Franklin raised could not occur, and an absolute veto would be necessary in times of crisis. I believe, as others do, that this power would seldom be used. The legislature would know that such a power existed and would refrain from such laws as it would be sure to defeat. Its silent operation would therefore preserve harmony and prevent mischief. The case of Pennsylvania formerly was very different from its present case. The executive was not then, as now, to be appointed by the people. It was not in this case, as in the one cited, be supported by the head of a great empire, actuated by a different and sometimes opposite interest. The salary, too, is now proposed to be fixed by the Constitution, or, if Dr. Franklin's idea should be adopted, all salary, whatever, interdicted. The requiring a large proportion of each house to overrule the executive check might do in peaceable times, but there might be tempestuous moments in which animosities may run high between the executive and legislative branches and in which the former ought to be able to defend itself. This position was shocking to some of the delegates. South Carolina delegate Pierce Butler rose and explained had he known that an absolute veto was going to be on the table, he never would have supported a single-person executive over a council. Plus, didn't the convention realize that a tyrant was possibly waiting in the wings, just lurking to abuse this kind of power when he walked right onto the stage? I had been in favor of a single executive magistrate, but could I have entertained an idea that a complete negative on the laws was to be given him, I certainly should have acted very differently. It had been observed that in all countries the executive power is in a constant cause of increase. This was certainly the case in Great Britain. Gentlemen seem to think that we had nothing to apprehend from an abuse of the executive power. But why might not a Catalan or a Cromwell arise in this country as well as in others? Let me jump in here for just a second. Lucius Sergius Catalina, often referred to as Catalan, was a Roman politician and soldier who got rich during murderous political purges in Rome. Basically, he made sure that specific rich men would be identified as enemies of the state and executed by Roman dictator Sulla. After their executions, 
Catalan took over their estates. His victims included his brother and two brother-in-laws. This was not enough. He later cravenly conspired to take power by force, but his conspiracy was exposed and defeated by the famous Roman lawyer and statesman Cicero. Oliver Cromwell was a British statesman and general who led a violent overthrow of King Charles I in the British Civil War. King Charles I was executed and Cromwell took power ruling as a dictator with the fabulous title of Lord Protector. He directed a brutal conquest of Ireland. The shadows of these historical tyrants, among others, like Julius Caesar, haunted the Founding Fathers. They were extraordinarily concerned that a strong man would take power and rule as a despot. Back to you, Mike Gerard. Well, thanks, Judge Warren, for the mini biopics and illumination. Now, get out of my segment. Again! Gunning Bedford Jr. determined to address the convention. Hold on there, Mike Gerard. We haven't heard much from Gunning Bedford Jr. Let me tell our listeners about this delegate. Bedford was a delegate from Delaware and was mighty impressive. His family helped settle Jamestown and he studied at the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton. His roommate was a studious, frail, and often sickly kid named James Madison. Bedford became a lawyer under the tutelage of a legal giant of his time, Joseph Reed, and served in the Delaware Legislature and the Continental Congress. After the Constitutional Convention, he helped usher the ratification of the Constitution in Delaware, the first state to ratify. He also served as Delaware's Attorney General, was consulted in connection with the Judiciary Act of 1789, a landmark act that continues to set the basic framework for the federal court system, and he served as a presidential elector twice. Then, he was appointed by General Washington to be a federal district court judge in Delaware. Bedford served as a federal judge until his death. Well, thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett, for that interlude. Now you get out of my segment. (laughs) Bedford was indeed impressive. At the convention, Bedford was one of the few who opposed a veto in any form or fashion. I am opposed to every check of the legislature, even the Council of Revision first proposed. I think it shall be sufficient to mark out in the Constitution the boundaries to the legislative authority, which shall give all the requisite security to the rights of the other departments. The representatives of the people were the best judges of what was for their interest and ought to be under no external control whatsoever. The two branches would produce a sufficient control within the legislature itself. Bedford's view was that Congress was perfectly capable of restraining itself and would provide the best policy by being unrestrained from the threat of a veto. And Bedford was not alone. Virginia's George Mason gave a spirited defense of eliminating the veto. It would over-empower the executive, would lead to corruption, and would lead to an elective monarchy. The probable abuses of a negative had been well explained by Dr. Franklin, as proved by experience, the best of all tests. Will not the same door be opened here? The executive may refuse its assent to necessary measures till new appointments shall be referred to him, and having by degrees engrossed all these into his own hands, The American executive, like the British, 
will by bribery and influence save himself the trouble and odium of exerting his negative afterwards. We are, Mr. Chairman, going very far in this business. We are not indeed constituting a British government, but a more dangerous monarchy, an elective one. We are introducing a new principle into our system and not necessary, as in the British government, where the executive has greater rights to defend. Do gentlemen mean to pave the way to hereditary monarchy? Franklin had the last word on this debate on this date. He reviewed how a tyranny had been imposed in the Netherlands and remarked that the power of the executive was increasing everywhere, and with an absolute veto, it would do so in America as well. Although tipping his hat to George Washington, knowing he would be the first president, he noted that The first man put at the helm will be a good one. Nobody knows what might come afterwards. The executive will always be increasing here, as elsewhere, till it ends in a monarchy. A vote was taken, and the motion to have an absolute executive veto went down in flames. Ten states to none. Butler then moved that the executive be given the authority to suspend a law for going into effect for a defined period of time, but Elbridge Gerry immediately remarked that this would have all the disadvantages of a veto with none of the benefits, so the idea was promptly dropped. The convention then quickly agreed to fix the override authority of Congress at a two-thirds vote, and approved Gary's motion to eliminate the involvement of the judiciary and to solely vest the Congress with the power to override the veto. The vote was overwhelming. Eight states to two. Yet, on July 21st, the convention revisited in earnest the idea of having the judiciary be part of the veto process. In a typical Wilsonian way, James Wilson began the discussion by admitting this idea had already been debated and defeated, but upon further reflection, he thought it deserved additional consideration. He remarked, The judiciary ought to have an opportunity for remonstrating against projected encroachments on the people as well as on themselves. It had been said that the judges, as expositors of the laws, would have an opportunity of defending their constitutional rights. There was weight in this observation, but this power of the judges did not go far enough. Laws may be unjust, may be unwise, may be dangerous, may be destructive, and yet may not be so unconstitutional as to justify the judges in refusing to give them effect. Let them have a share in the revisionary power, and they will have an opportunity of taking notice of these characters of a law, and of counteracting by the weight of their opinions the improper views of the legislature. Mr. Madison seconded the motion. Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorham strongly disagreed, he saw no advantage of employing the judges in this way. In fact, it was a downright poor idea. 
As judges, they are not to be presumed to possess any peculiar knowledge of the mere policy of public measures, nor can it be necessary as a security for their constitutional rights. The judges in England have no such additional provision for their defense, yet their jurisdiction is not invaded. I think it would be best to let the executive alone be responsible, and at most to authorize him to call on judges for their opinions. According to Gorham, there was no need for the judges to become involved in such a manner. They could protect their constitutional authority in other ways, and they didn't have the competence to delve in public policy. But Oliver Ellsworth joined Wilson and Madison. He heartily approved the motion. The aid of the judges will give more wisdom and firmness to the executive. They will possess a systematic and accurate knowledge of the laws, which the executive cannot be expected always to possess. The law of nations also will frequently come into question. Of this, the judges alone will have competent information. Contrary to the position of opponents, Ellsworth thought that judges would be uniquely qualified to review the law, both domestic and foreign. Madison then rose to defend the motion. He commented that it would benefit all three branches of the government as well as the community at large. I consider the object of the motion as of great importance to the mediated constitution. It would be useful to the Judiciary Department by giving it an additional opportunity of defending itself against legislative encroachments. It would be useful to the executive by inspiring additional confidence and firmness in exerting the revisionary power. It would be useful to the legislature by the valuable assistance it would give in preserving a consistency, conciseness, perspicuity, and technical propriety in the laws, qualities peculiarly necessary and yet shamefully wanting in our republican codes. It would, moreover, be useful to the community at large as an additional check against a pursuit of those unwise and unjust measures which constituted so great a portion of our calamities. In light of all these advantages, Madison was stumped as to why it should be rejected, unless it made the judges or executives too strong. But this was a false pretense. If any solid objection could be urged against the motion, it must be on the supposition that it tended to give too much strength either to the executive or judiciary. I do not think there was the least ground for this apprehension. It was much more to be apprehended that, notwithstanding this cooperation of the two departments, the legislature would still be an overmatch for them. Experience in the states has evinced a powerful tendency in the legislature to absorb all power into its vortex. This 
was the source of danger to the American constitutions and suggested the necessity of giving every defensive authority to the other departments that was consistent with Republican principles. George Mason weighed in supporting the motion for similar reasons. Massachusetts delegate Elbridge Gerry was dismayed that they were debating this proposition yet again. Contrary to Madison's position, he noted that this provision was unnecessary and dangerous to the separation of powers. The object I conceive of the revisionary power was merely to secure the executive department against legislative encroachment. The executive, therefore, who will best know and be ready to defend his rights ought alone to have the defense of them. The motion was liable to strong objections. It was combining and mixing together the legislative and the other departments. It was establishing an improper coalition between the executive and judiciary departments. It was making statesmen of the judges and setting them up as the guardians of the rights of the people. I rely for my part on the representatives of the people as the guardians of their rights and interests. It was making the expositors of the laws, the legislatures, which ought never to be done. You know, all this talk of judges makes me feel like I should relieve Mike Girard. Caleb Strong, also from Massachusetts, supported his home state colleague on the floor. Strong was a member of the Massachusetts General Court, that is, the Massachusetts Legislature, in 1776, and served as county attorney for Hampshire County for 24 years. After the Constitution was ratified, he became one of the first U.S. Senators from Massachusetts in 1789. Ironically, he defeated his convention ally Jerry in the gubernatorial election in 1800 and served until 1807. He defeated him again in 1812 to take back the governor's spot. In the War of 1812, which he opposed, he refused to order the state militia to help with the war effort. Now, back in the Constitutional Convention, he declared that the judiciary should have no part in forming the laws they would be evaluating as judges. The power of making ought to be kept distinct from that of expounding the laws. No function of expertors might ought to be influenced by the part they had taken in framing the laws. Maryland Delegate Luther Martin concurred and elaborated that by putting this power in the hands of the judges, that they would have too much power, more than the other branches, because they could kill legislation twice, once via veto, and again if they declared the law unconstitutional. The judges would also lose the confidence of the people by giving up the role as a neutral judge by becoming a policymaker. Plus, it was an unworkable idea. I consider the association of the judges with the executive as a dangerous innovation, as well as one which could not produce the particular advantage expected from it. A knowledge of mankind and of legislative affairs cannot be presumed to belong in a higher degree to the judges than to the legislature. And as to the constitutionality of laws, that point will come before the judges in their proper official character. In this character, they have a negative on the laws. Join them with the executive in the revision, and they will have a double negative. 
It is necessary that the supreme judiciary should have the confidence of the people. This will soon be lost if they are employed in the task of remonstrating against popular measures of the legislature. Besides, in what mode and proportion are they to vote in the Council of Revision? In typical Madisonian fashion, Madison refused to concede. He argued that allowing the judges to veto bills was not a violation of separation of power principles. Instead, he asserted it favored checks and balances and also was in accord with British practice. There was nothing whatsoever to fear. I could not discover in the proposed association of the judges with the executive in the revisionary check on the legislature any violation of the maxim which requires the great departures of power to be kept separate and distinct. On the contrary, I think it an auxiliary precaution in favor of the maxim. If a constitutional discrimination of the departments on paper were a sufficient security to each against encroachments of others, all further provisions would indeed be superfluous. But experience has taught us a distrust of that security, and that it is necessary to introduce such a balance of powers and interests as will guarantee the provisions on paper. Instead, therefore, of contenting ourselves with laying down the theory in the Constitution that each department ought to be separate and distinct, it was proposed to add a defensive power to each, which should taint the theory in practice. In so doing, we did not bleed the departments together. We erected effectual barriers for keeping them separate. The most regular example of this theory was in the British Constitution. Yet, it was not only the practice there to admit the judges to a seat in the legislature and in the executive councils and to submit to their previous examination all laws of a certain description, but it was a part of their constitution that the executive might negative any law whatever a part of their constitution which had been universally regarded as calculated for the preservation of the whole. The objection against the union of the judiciary and executive branches in the revisions of the laws, and either no foundation or was not carried far enough. If such a union was an improper mixture of powers, or such a judiciary check on the laws was inconsistent with the theory of a free constitution, it was equally so to admit the executive to any participation in the making of laws, and the revisionary plan ought to be discarded altogether. Virginia's George Mason expressed his support for Madison's position of having judges join in the veto power. The debate ended for the day without a vote. However, on July 24th, the convention returned to this topic and unanimously approved the same process they had been previously approved. That is to say, the judiciary were not included in the veto, and a veto would be overridden with a two-thirds vote. 
However, in typical, typical Madisonian fashion, Madison yet again returned to the subject matter. You must give him credit for being tenacious. This time, he presented a fully drafted proposal, which was a complicated blend of branches and vote thresholds. Every bill which shall have passed the two houses shall, before it become a law, be severally presented to the President of the United States and to the judges of the Supreme Court for the revision of each. If, upon such revision, they shall approve of it, they shall respectively signify their approbation by signing it. But if, upon such revision, it shall appear improper to either or both to be passed into a law, it shall be returned with the objections against it to that house, in which it shall have originated, who shall enter the objections at large on their journal and proceed to reconsider the bill. But if, after such reconsideration, two-thirds of that house, when either the president or a majority of the judges shall object, or three-fourths, where both shall object, shall agree to pass it, it shall, together with the objections, be sent to the other house, by which it shall likewise be reconsidered. And, if approved by two-thirds, or three-fourths of the other house, as the case may be, it shall become law. Um, okay. I mean, I think we need to diagram this proposal to fully understand it, but the brilliant James Wilson understood it, and in typical Wilsonian fashion, he seconded the motion. Of course, yet another debate broke out. Pennsylvania's Governor Morris later dubbed the penman of the Constitution because he physically wrote out the final version of the Constitution and modified and added various phrases and words that have had a major impact on constitutional law up to this day, rose in support of the three-quarters threshold advocating that it would stop pernicious legislation. I regret that something like the proposed check could not be agreed to. I dwell on the importance of public credit and the difficulty of supporting it without some strong barrier against the instability of legislative assemblies. I suggest the idea of requiring three-fourths of each house to repeal the laws where the president should not concur. I have no great reliance on the revisionary power as the executive was now to be constituted or elected by Congress. The legislative will now contrive to soften down the president. I recite the history of paper emissions and the perseverance of the legislative assemblies in repeating them with all the distressing effects of such measures before their eyes." Were the national legislature formed, and a war was now to break out, this ruinous expedient would be again resorted to, if not guarded against. Requiring three-fourths to repeal would, though not a complete remedy, prevent the hasty passage of laws and the frequency of those repeals which destroy faith in the public, and which are among our greatest calamities. Pennsylvania's John Dickinson reflected that he did not support having judges be part of the veto process, but he could think of no other satisfactory alternative. 
Governor Morris returned and said he was actually in favor of an absolute veto. He cited at great lengths Greek, Roman, and Pennsylvanian history to support the argument that an absolute veto was necessary to stop legislative mischief. Roger Sherman had had enough of this nonsense back and forth. Can one man be trusted better than all the others if they all agree? Well, this was neither wise nor safe. I disapprove of judges meddling in politics and parties. We have gone far enough in forming the negative as it now stands. Even the brilliant founding fathers can be fatigued. Sherman's comments were echoed by Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorham, who saw... No end to these difficulties and postponements! South Carolina Delegate John Rutledge joined in the chorus of frustrated delegates. I am against postponing our decisions here. We have gone over the same ground over and over and over. The tediousness of the proceedings is embarrassing and dreadful. We must come to a decision now so we can proceed to finalize this Constitution. Oliver Ellsworth held to the same language. We must not postpone our decision. These debates are indeed tedious. We grow more and more skeptical as we proceed. If we do not decide soon, we shall be unable to come to any decision. The attempt to postpone the decision was defeated, 10 to 2. North Carolina's Hugh Williamson then moved to change two-thirds of each house into three-fourths as the requisite to overrule the dissent of the president. He saw no danger in this and preferred giving the power to the president alone to admitting the judges into the business of legislation. In typical, typical Wilsonian fashion, James Wilson seconded the motion. The motion for three-fourths instead of two-thirds passed six states to four. Nevertheless, Maryland's Daniel Carroll and James Wilson continued to debate the merits. Finally, the debate on this topic ended for the day with no more changes. The agreement of the convention was codified in a report on August 6, presented to the convention. It seemed like the debate on this issue had finally concluded. Not quite. The convention returned to the topic on August 15th, nearly a month since the last debate on the floor. Madison made the insightful observation that legislators passed not just bills, but resolutions and orders as well, and he moved to allow the president to veto resolutions as well as bills. After a rather short and confused conversation on the subject, the question was put and rejected, eight states to three. Then the time granted to the president to consider whether to approve or veto a bill was increased from seven days to ten days, with just a couple of states objecting. One might surmise that the lawmaking clause was finally, finally concluded. But, oh no, the convention was not done beating this horse. About a month later, on September 12th, the future second day of Patriot Week, North Carolinian Hugh Williamson was back, trying to change the margin required to overrule a presidential veto. You might remember he had moved to set the margin at three quarters, and the convention agreed. Now, he admitted that he was ill-advised. I move to reconsider the clause requiring three-fourths of each house to overrule the negative of the president in order to strike out three-fourths and insert two-thirds. I had myself proposed three-fourths instead of two-thirds, 
but I have since been convinced that the latter propulsion was the best. The former puts too much in the power of the president. Can you imagine what Gorham, Rutledge, and Ellsworth must be thinking? Tedious, indeed. Still, Roger Sherman was happy to re-engage in the debate. He offered that the president, a single person, was more likely to make a mistake than the collective of the legislature. Governor Morris chimed in to maintain the three-quarters threshold, thinking that the congressmen from newer states that would be located furthest away from the federal capital would not be able to attend Congress as much as the closer and older states and that the newer states would want this protection. Hamilton agreed with Morris, noting that the mischief in New York was not prevented by a two-thirds override requirement. Elbridge Jerry jumped up to offer a new insight. It is necessary to consider the danger on the other side also. Two-thirds will be a considerable, perhaps a proper security. Three-fourths puts too much in the power of a few men. The primary object of the revisionary check of the president is not to protect the general interest, but to defend his own department. If three-fourths be required, a few senators, having hopes from the nomination of the president to offices, will combine with him and impede proper laws. Williamson, Mason, Pickney, and Madison all threw in some comments into the hopper and the convention had had enough of the debate. The question was called in Williamson's motion to restore the veto override threshold to two-thirds passed, six states to one. Madison's concern about subjecting resolutions and similar congressional action to a veto was incorporated into the final version of the constitutional text adopted by the convention. Bombastic Brent Bassett, would you like to take it from here? Why, thank you, Judge Warren. When the state ratifying conventions considered the Constitution's text, the issue of the lawmaking clause and the veto was not on the top of minds of most debates. There seemed to be nearly universal agreement that bicameralism was appropriate and that a veto could be overridden was also warranted. The finest explication and defense of the Constitution ironically came from James Wilson, who had fought vigorously for an absolute presidential veto and a veto process involving the judiciary. Yet, on the floor of the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, he calmly and deliberately explained why the Constitution's provisions were unassailable. First, he explained why bicameralism was the best form of government, since the Senate represented the states and the House of Representatives represented the people, they would check each other and ensure that any legislation was carefully evaluated, drafted, and considered, and check each other from prejudices, passions, corruption, and similar dangers. But the most useful restraint upon the legislature, because it operates constantly, arises from the division of its power among two branches and from the qualified negative of the president upon both. As the government is formed, there are two sources from which the representation is drawn, though they both ultimately flow from the people. States now exist and others will come into existence as it is thought proper that they should be represented in the general government. 
But, gentlemen, will please to remember, this constitution was not framed merely for the states. It was framed for the people also, and the popular branch of the Congress will be the objects of their immediate choice. The two branches would serve as checks upon each other. They have the same legislative authorities, except in one instance. Money bills must originate in the House of Representatives. The Senate can pass no law without the concurrence of the House of Representatives, nor can the House of Representatives without the concurrence of the Senate. I believe, sir, that the observation which I am now going to make will apply to mankind in every situation. They will act with more caution and perhaps more integrity if their proceedings are to be under the inspection and control of the other than when they are not. From this principle, the proceedings of Congress will be conducted with a degree of circumspection, not common in single bodies where nothing more is necessary to be done than carrying the business through amongst themselves, whether it be right or wrong. In compound legislatures, every object must be submitted to a distinct body, not influenced by the arguments or warped by the prejudices of the other. And I believe that the persons who will form the Congress will be cautious in running the risk with a bare majority of having the negative of the President put on their proceedings. As there will be more circumspection in forming the laws, so will there be more stability in the laws when made. Indeed, one is the consequence of the other. For what has been well considered and founded in good sense will in practice be useful and salutary, and of consequence will not be liable to be soon repealed. Though two bodies may not possess more wisdom or patriotism than what may be found in a single body, yet they will necessarily introduce a greater degree of precision, an ingested and inaccurate code of laws is one of the most dangerous things that can be introduced into any government. The force of this observation is well known by every gentleman who has attended to the laws of the state. This, sir, is a very important advantage that will arise from this division of the legislative authority. In other words, two heads, or chambers, are better than one. By having two competing chambers, each chamber will make sure that the other chamber is producing the best possible work. It gives the best opportunity for excellent policymaking. In his lectures on the law, delivered years after the adoption of the Constitution, Wilson elaborated on why bicameralism was absolutely essential to preserving liberty. He observed that the greatest danger caused by a single House legislature is that it is impossible to restrain it in its operations. No other power in government can arrest the proceedings of that which makes the laws. Let us suppose that this single body, in a lucky moment, should pass a law to restrain itself. In the next moment, an unlucky one, it might repeal the restraining law. 
Any mounds which it might raise to confine itself would still be within the sphere of its own motion, and whatever force should impel it would necessarily impel those mounds along with it. To stop and to check, as well as to produce motion in this political globe, we must possess what the ancient Greek mathematician and physicist Archimedes wanted, another globe to stand upon. A single legislature is calculated to unite in it all the pernicious qualities of the different extremes of bad government. It produces general weakness, inactivity, and confusion, and these are intermixed with sudden and violent fits of despotism, injustice, and cruelty. There is not in the whole science of politics a more solid or a more important maxim than this that of all governments, those are the best which, by the natural effect of their constitutions, are frequently renewed or drawn back to their first principles. When a single legislature is determined to depart from the principles of the constitution and its incontrollable power may prompt the determination, there is no constitutional authority to arrest its progress. It may proceed by long and hasty strides in violating the Constitution, till nothing but a revolution can stop its career. Far different will be the case when the legislature consists of two branches— if one of them should depart or attempt to depart from the principles of the Constitution, it will be drawn back by the other. The very apprehension of the event will prevent the departure or the attempt. Stated more concisely, a single-chamber legislature can get caught up in passion, laziness, and corruption and run amok. With a second chamber, they compete and check each other. Each chamber understands it must do its best and most reasoned work to survive the scrutiny of and to persuade the other chamber. Back to the Pennsylvania ratifying convention, Wilson also defended the presidential veto as being an unqualified success and necessity. The president, sir, will not be a stranger to our country, to our laws, or to our wishes. He will, under this Constitution, be placed in office as the President of the whole Union, and will be chosen in such a manner that he may be justly styled the Man of the People. Being elected by the different parts of the United States, he will consider himself as not particularly interested for any one of them, but will watch over the whole with paternal care and affection." This will be the natural conduct to recommend himself to those who place him at high chair, and I consider it as a very important advantage that such a man must have every law presented to him before it can become binding on the United States. He will have before him the fullest information of our situation. He will avail himself not only of records and official communications, foreign and domestic, but he will also have the advice of the executive officers in the different departments of the general government. 
If, in consequence of this information and advice, he exercises the authority given to him, the effect will not be lost. He returns his objections, together with the bill, and unless two-thirds of both branches of the legislature are now found to approve it, it does not become a law. Wilson emphasized how the president, unlike anyone else in America, was elected in a vote across the nation. He would have a broader and more informed perspective than individual legislatures. He would also have the machinery of the entire executive branch, experts across many fields, to consult with. The veto helped ensure good policymaking. The debate in the papers between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists mostly ignored the lawmaking clause, bicameralism, and the presidential veto. However, Noah Webster, yes, the author of our beloved dictionary, in a pro-Constitution pamphlet threw his weight behind the bicameralism. He noted that, in theory, a single legislative chamber was appealing because everyone could be represented in it. He then explained why this seemingly appealing idea was actually appalling. But men are ever running in two extremes. The passions, after a violent constraint, are apt to rush into licentiousness. And even the reason of men who have experienced evils from the defects of a government will sometimes coolly condemn the whole system. Every person moderately acquainted with human nature knows that public bodies, as well as individuals, are liable to the influence of sudden and violent passions, under the operation which the voice of reason is silenced. Instances of influence are not so frequent as in individuals, but its effect are extensive in proportion to the numbers that compose the public body. This fact suggests the expediency of dividing the powers of legislation between two bodies, of whose debates shall be separate and not dependent on each other. That if at any time one part should appear to be under any undue influence, either from passion, obstinacy, jealousy of particular men, attachment to a popular speaker, or other extraordinary causes, there might be a power in the legislature sufficient to check every pernicious measure. Even in a small republic composed of men equal in property and abilities, and all meeting for the purpose of making laws like the old Romans in the field of Mars, a division of the body into two independent branches would be a necessary step to prevent the disorders which arise from the pride, irritability, and stubbornness of mankind. This will ever be the case while men possess 
passions, easily inflamed, which may bias their reasons and lead them to erroneous conclusions. Another consideration has weight. A single body of men may be led astray by one person of abilities and address, who, on the first starting a proposition, may throw a plausible appearance on one side of the question, and give a lead to the whole debate, to prevent any ill consequence from such a circumstance, a separate discussion, before a different body of men, and taken up on new grounds, is very eligible expedient. Webster also noted that experienced men would likely be drawn to the Senate and newcomers to the House of Representatives, giving a mix and match of strengths that could only benefit lawmaking. He also noted that several of the states avoided disaster after the American Revolution only because one chamber of the legislature refused to adopt what would have been unjust and terrible policies adopted by the other house. In Federalist Paper Number 51, Madison was able to take a step back and explain how Article 1, Sections 1-7, through 7, along with the separation of powers and checks and balances, all worked together to protect freedom by slicing and dicing up power among and within the branches of government. But it is not possible to give each branch of government an equal power of self-defense. In Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. The remedy for this inconveniency is to divide the legislature into different branches and to render them by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as the nature of their common functions and their common dependence on the society will admit. It may even be necessary to guard against dangerous encroachments by still further precautions, as the weight of the legislative authority requires that it should be thus divided, the weakness of the executive may require, on the other hand, that it should be fortified by a presidential veto. There was a smattering of opposition of giving any kind of veto to the president in the anti-federalist press, but it was inconsequential in comparison to the many other objections they were lobbying at the Constitution. Justice Joseph Story, an early giant of constitutional law, in his tremendously influential constitutional treatise, just skips by bicameralism. However, he elaborated a more modern sense in connection with the presidential veto. In the first place, there is a natural tendency in the legislative department to intrude upon the rights and to absorb the powers of the other departments of the government. If the executive did not possess this qualified negative, he might gradually be stripped of all his authority and become what the governors of some of the states now are, a mere pageant and a shadow of magistracy. 
In other words, the veto power was essential to the separation of powers and to preserve the rightful constitutional authority of the president. Just the story continued. In the next place, the power is important as an additional security against the enactment of rash, immature, and improper laws. Of course, this echoes the point of bicameralism and adds another additional security against passionate and reckless lawmaking. But story was not done. In the third place, the president may fairly be deemed the representative of the whole nation, the choice being produced by a different modification of interest and opinions and votes from that which the choice of either branch of the national legislature is produced, either that representing the people, that is, the House of Representatives, or that representing the states, that is, the Senate. His power, therefore, of a qualified negative being founded upon the supposition that he truly represents all the interests and opinions of the Union introduces a useful element to check any preponderating interest of any section in a particular matter. The veto protects the power of the president, and it also allows the single person elected throughout the nation to address key policy issues from a national perspective. In short, most in the country agreed that a bicameral Congress, along with a presidential veto that could be overridden by the Congress to be a safe and wise mode of lawmaking. The text of the provision requiring the votes of each member to be recorded in the Journal of Congress was scarcely discussed in the Constitutional Convention, the state ratifying conventions, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, and even just a story. Similarly, the provision requiring that reasons for the president's veto being recorded in the congressional journals was glossed over by almost everyone. James Wilson touched on it in a few times in his speeches and records, noting that the requirement would create a permanent record that future presidents and congresses could review for future lawmaking. Everyone else apparently agreed that recording votes and the reasons for vetoes assumed this was proper for good governance and accountability. The voting public and states had the right to know how their members of Congress voted and why a president would issue a veto. The debates hardly mentioned the resolution's making clause, as any debate over it would have simply paralleled the debates over the lawmaking clause. However, it should be noted that the president cannot veto the decision of the Congress to determine when to adjourn. This exemption bolsters the separation of powers. The Congress needs to determine when they meet separate from the president. Judge Warren, take us home. Many thanks, bombastic Brent Bassett. Some key takeaways from this episode. The division of the federal legislature between the House of Representatives and the Senate is essential for liberty and good governance for several reasons. It stops passion or corruption from running wild, which can more easily happen in a single-chamber legislative body. It also encourages a more careful and deliberative evaluation of proposed legislation, because each chamber is accountable for its work to the other. It also ensures that each chamber can check the excesses and poor decision-making of the other chamber. To become law, the Constitution requires each chamber to pass precisely the same legislation. After the passage of a bill within 10 days excepting Sundays, the President can sign it or veto it. If the President signs the bill, it becomes law. 
If the president does not veto or sign the bill, it becomes law after the conclusion of the 10-day waiting period. However, if the congressional session runs out before the expiration of the 10-day waiting period and the president does not sign it, the bill dies with a pocket veto. The veto protects the power of the president, and it also allows the single person elected throughout the nation to address key policy issues from a national perspective. If the president vetoes the legislation, the president needs to explain to the Congress the reason why it was vetoed. The bill is dead unless the Congress overrides the veto by a two-thirds vote in each chamber during the same legislative session. Proposals for an absolute veto and a three-quarters veto threshold were both rejected. The Constitutional Convention found that the two-thirds provision would allow the people's representatives to act if necessary. The same process applies to legislative resolutions, orders, and other matters requiring Congress to vote, except adjournments of Congress, which is exempt from a veto. For lawmaking and resolutions, the vote of each member of Congress and the reasons for a presidential veto must be recorded in the journal of the respective chamber, which furthers good governance and accountability. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinuchny, who is our sound designer and Patriot's video content producer, and the fabulous amateur historian, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers, and other great patriots and flags from our history, along with all the other fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.